John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the Cinephile's new sponsor, an absolutely incredible game, Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old, and this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there. The Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap, or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yes, Stephen, as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, Thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. Hi, this is Steve. Three years ago, after a fair amount of anxiety and stalling on my part, John and I finally decided to tackle what many believe to be the greatest film of all time, Citizen Kane. Of course, for a movie like that, we knew we had to do something truly special. I mean, how could a single podcast cover a film of such monumental importance? Our decision was not one episode or two, but an entire month of the cinephiles devoted to the great Orson Welles and the incomparable Citizen Kane. The next year, it was Hitchcock, Rear Window, Vertigo, and Psycho. Last year, we tackled The Emperor, Akira Kurosawa, with Seven Samurai and Yojimbo. This year there really was no question what director and what films we were going to explore. Since the beginning of The Cinephiles, there has probably been no more requested films than Francis Ford Coppola's The Godfather and The Godfather Part Two. But the fact is, even a month of The Cinephiles isn't enough to cover these epic films. In fact, two months might not be enough. But what I can tell you is that this week on The Cinephiles, John and I will be exploring the life and the films of Francis Ford Coppola, from his childhood battle with polio, to his battles on the Godfather films and Apocalypse Now, to his struggles, successes, and failures throughout the rest of his career. Coppola is a brilliant, challenging, and complicated person, and John and I have an incredible time discussing his career. So, if you want to learn more about this incredible filmmaker, maybe you need to take a journey of your own to cinephiles.net, where you can buy or stream not just The Godfather 1 and 2, but just about every one of his movies, from The Rain People and Finian's Rainbow to Peggy Sue Got Married, Tucker, and The Rainmaker. And if you happen to support the show on patreon.com slash thecinephiles, right now you could be hearing John and I discuss the actors who managed to leave the world of television to become movie stars, and the movie stars who found a second life on TV. And one more thing, to finish up our month of Coppola, we will be recording a commentary track on a film that you choose. Would you rather hear us talk about The Godfather or The Conversation? Maybe Apocalypse Now is more your thing. Well, if you want your voice to be heard, you need to fill out our annual listener survey at www.surveymonkey.com slash r slash vqhxmx5. That's surveymonkey.com slash r slash vqhxmx5, where you can also vote on the first film from 2011 that we cover on the cinephiles. And don't worry, you can also find the link in the show notes. So that's a cinephile shorts on movie and TV actors on Patreon, our annual listener survey at surveymonkey.com slash r slash vqhxmx5, and an exploration of the life and the films of Francis Ford Coppola this Friday on The Cinephiles.
We were in the jungle. On était au jungle. There were too many of us. We had access to too many, uh, too much money. On avait accès à trop d'argent. Too much equipment. And little by little, we went insane. Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My name is John Roke. I'm a writer, producer, and host over there on the Outlaw Nation and uh, voiceover guy as well and massive fan of the gentleman we are talking about today. I call him uh, FFC for short, but he is uh, <laughs> he is uh, Francis Ford Coppola, Steve, and we begin our two months of Coppola uh, with this episode, my man. I mean, we, we started with a month of Citizen Kane, mm-hmm. and then we did, I think it ended up being a little bit more of a month of Hitchcock and Kurosawa. And we looked at this month, what we're doing is we're doing our usual, just sort of biography of Francis Ford Coppola. That's what we're doing today. Yeah. And then we're going to move into The Godfather. We haven't recorded it yet. No. But it ain't going to be one part. <laughs> no, no. It's not going to be short. And then we're going to move into the even bigger Godfather 2. Yeah. So that will be two parts at least. Yeah, yeah. And then we're going to be do a commentary track of your choosing. So it's going to be up to the cinephiles to decide what movie we do a commentary track. And we just put out our annual uh, survey. And you can, if you haven't taken it yet, you can go to www.surveymonkey.com slash, and here's the complicated part, slash R slash VQHXMX5. That's surveymonkey.com slash R slash VQHXMX5. And I'll put that in the show notes as well. Mm. And not only can you pick what Coppola film we're going to do a commentary track on, but you also can pick because it's going to be, it's 2021, got a whole other year of movies we can explore. So you can choose which film from 2011 we're going to do first. Mm -hmm. And as we started last year, we're redoing some of our earliest cinephiles episode in the new, more expansive format. And so you get to pick, do you want to hear us break down Die Hard again, or It's a Wonderful Life, Mm. or High Noon, or there's a whole bunch of good movies that we'd like to revisit, and we'd like to hear which ones you think we should do first. Yep. These surveys are always great for giving us an idea of what's happening with our fans, giving us an idea of what they're interested in, because our fan base grows and grows every year, Steve, so the expansive point of view of the fans uh, uh, changes as well. So the survey gives us an idea of where their interests are going, what they're leaning towards hearing uh, from us, or wanting to hear from from us uh, so it's exciting to see that as well and a whole new batch of films from 2011 for them to choose from for us to cover and there are some good ones in 2011 as well so i'm excited absolutely yeah and 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 of course one of the things we found out from listening to our fans is the number one thing that they've been wanting us to tackle pretty much since the beginning of the cinephiles yeah is The Godfather 1 and 2, and that's what we're going to start working on today with our exploration of Francis Ford Coppola. You know, it's funny. You and I are both Orson Welles obsessed. Yes, yes. So we both knew a lot about him. I had read Kurosawa's biography and knew a fair amount of him. I would learned a lot about Hitchcock and and read the Hitchcock Truffaut and some of those things. And so I feel like the first three directors we did this with – I was on pretty solid ground. Yeah. You know what? I've never read a biography of Francis Ford Coppola. Oh, wow. Okay. You know, so like this one, I feel like I know less mm-hmm. than the others, and it was pretty interesting learning about him. You know, it's funny. is the less you, you what you consider to be less is probably more than most people listening know about Coppola. So <laughs> that's going to be exciting uh, to go through as we talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know. Um, <laughs> let, let's start just with a little bit of biography. Uh, he was born in 1939 in Detroit. His dad, of course, is Carmine Coppola, who was a flautist, a very successful flautist they were in detroit and he was with the detroit symphony his uh both his sets of grandparents came from italy of course and what i didn't realize is that he has artists in his family his Mm. grandfather's maternal grandfather is also a composer and so there was a long tradition of in both sides of his family of a love of the arts Mm -hmm. um and uh here's what i didn't know i did so obvious now that i know that he's from detroit is where he got the middle name Ford. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's Henry Ford. Yeah, Henry Ford, of course. It's also why Tucker, a man in his dream, but was a, ah. a, a personal 
Uh, one of the most personal films he's ever directed uh, that didn't get quite the same notoriety as, as a lot of his other films, but there was a definite impulse and desire of his to showcase where he came from through that story. See, I never, I never connected it, mm. and 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 I just was—it's Francis Ford Coppola. That's just his <laughs> name, and I just didn't think about um, that. The importance—if you grew up in Detroit—I mean, that was a factory town in the '30s and '40s. Uh, I also think it's fascinating too, Steve, because mm. that name Francis Ford Coppola, Coppola being the Italian heritage of that name, but Ford being the ultra-American uh, uh, part of that name, and a lot of his films are about that, especially certainly the Godfather series, about this idea of ingratiating yourself into the American uh, way of things, and also you know what the American system, the truth, and the lies behind the American system uh, that are exposed within these characters in his movies as well. So that's also kind of an indirect thing to have as part of his legacy through his name. That is a fantastic point. It never occurred to me. Um, mm. You're 100% right. That blend of the immigrant and American and is mm. the immigrant American and what is America. Right. That's uh, absolutely fundamental to so many of his films. Mm. Um. His dad was also the assistant orchestra director for the Ford Sunday Evening Hour, which was from Detroit. Um, and that's when he got discovered and hired by the NBC Symphony Orchestra as their flautist. Hmm. Um, and, like, that's a big deal. Hmm. I don't think we understand today what that meant to be a musician playing at the NBC Symphony Orchestra. Yeah. That's huge. Yeah, of course. He was an important guy. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's, of course, what moved them to New York City. He grew up in Woodside, Queens. And then I think the most important event in his young life is he had polio. Mm. And that meant, uh, much like I think Martin Scorsese was very sick as a kid, and that meant he was home in bed a lot. <laughs> and that gave him time to read. He read poetry. He did puppet shows. He, 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 he let his creative mind expand when his physical body couldn't go out and do stuff. You know, it's very reminiscent of Teddy Roosevelt as well. You know, Steve. Great point. Right? So many of our, uh, for those of your parents, I know Steve's, Steve and Karen are parents, but for them, I am not. But for the many people who are parents, you know, so one of the worst things that you initially encounter is uh, a child having an illness that leaves them bedridden or leaves them struggling or leaves them suffering or looking out the window, seeing other kids playing and being able to do it. But you can see some kind of silver lining here that you they have more time to study, to learn, to become intelligent. So once they survive or come out of this illness, they'll have a better understanding of the world and possibly even a better chance to be successful in this world in whatever field they choose to pursue. I'm not saying I'm wishing that on people, but we're seeing numerous examples of people who have succeeded uh, despite these illnesses or took the time that they were bedridden to educate their mind so that they're more advanced uh, uh, than other people at a certain age. And certainly with Coppola, that hubris that was developed from his intelligence comes to uh, comes to the forefront in a lot of the situations as he grows up and becomes a filmmaker. It's interesting what you say. And I was just thinking about like how many of your good qualities came came from adversity sure. as opposed to how many good qualities came from the points of your life that were easy. Yeah. Yeah. You know, all, yeah. Yeah. All of my strengths came from adversity. Of course. I mean, I, maybe that's not true. Like, I mean, I think, you know, I had a very stable, my parents were a very stable environment growing up. I think that helped me in a whole bunch of ways. Yeah. Yeah. But it's overcoming adversity that defines you. I think so in too. Lots of ways. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Um, I think one of the biggest influences that I can find of him in his early life, in addition to just being home with polio, was at 15, he read Streetcar Named Desire by Tennessee Williams. Mm. And that's just, I mean, that that moment in the theater and in arts in America is just so shattering. Mm. And you could totally see how that kind of raw, emotional, American, down-to-earth drama affected everything he was going to do. Yeah, yeah. Um, he also, much like a whole bunch of people we've talked about, Steven Spielberg, Coen Brothers, Ken Burns, a whole bunch of other guys, he got that 8mm camera. <laughs> and he was making little movies. Mm -hmm. And at first, though, he wanted to be a musician like his dad. He played the tuba, and apparently he played it so well that he got a scholarship to his first of many high schools, <laughs> which is the New York Military Academy. <laughs> Can you picture Francis Ford Coppola <laughs> at military school? Playing the tuba. <laughs> yeah, no. Playing the tuba. I mean, no, I can't. Not without uh, a lot of battles, I'm sure. Verbal battles, for sure. 
<laughs> you, want, you want to know my uh, my dad was in ROTC because it was required when he was at Cal. Right. <laughs> you want to hear my dad's story of ROTC? Please. Who was way more of a conformist than Francis Ford Coppola. <laughs> Let's be real clear. My dad was Eagle Scout, straight arrow, like yeah. didn't drink. He never did drugs, anything like that. Is there? Apparently, there was like a a, a sergeant, you know, in ROTC. And who didn't like my dad and my dad had polished you. You're in the army. You know more, much more about this than me. My dad had polished his shoes, polished his belt, pressed his clothes. The whole thing went out for drill. And the sergeant walked up, kicked dirt on his shoes Mm. and then looked down on his shoes and says, you know, you didn't shine your shoes. And my dad, the straight arrow person said, that's because you just kicked dirt on them. You son of a bitch. (laughs) (laughs) That was the end of my dad in ROTC. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah. so I can't imagine Francis Ford Coppola. Oh, right. <laughs> Dealing with that. School. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Apparently he went to 23 high schools. What? That's what I read. I knew that he had bumped wow. around a bunch. But the, what I read was 23 high schools. Now, was it because of the military? Was he like, was, oh, sorry, not the military, but like uh, the, the Carmine was moving her family around? No. Oh, wow. Nope. Wow. I don't think so. I, I, and, I, and this is where like. I haven't read that Coppola biography, mm. so so maybe there's a whole bunch of details I don't know. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think I think he didn't fit <laughs> yeah. easily. Yeah, uh, ended up going to Hofstra. What I didn't know, one of the students he was at Hofstra with, James Kahn. Oh wow, okay, yes, yeah, so, and he went uh, on a theater scholarship mm. for playwriting. So he stopped the tuba, and now he went on to playwriting because again, streetcar named desire. He wanted to go into the theater. And it's really then that he discovered film. Yeah. He wasn't like Scorsese, like, because it's a very similar story. He's sickly as a kid, but it was going to that movie theater was the most important thing in his life. Mm-hmm. It doesn't sound like that was true as much for Coppola, but it, and, and you want to know what the, the director, what, there are two directors that are really the people that made him ch- change his path to filmmaking. The first, which is really clear and obvious in his work, is Elliot Kazan. Yeah. You know, who obviously directed Streetcar. Yeah. You know, and has that raw American working class thing. I mean, that, that, that is immigrant. Huge in Coppola. Yeah. Immigrant. Immigrant. Yeah. 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 And exploring the the underbelly of the American system, the American yeah. ideals. Yeah, yeah. But the other one, and this is what I find fascinating, is Sergei Eisenstein. Mm. You know, so that's Battleship Potemkin, that's mm. Ivan the Terrible, and that's. And, and and what I the reason I bring this up that I find is so interesting is to me those are the two aspects of his filmmaking, the raw emotional truthful American immigrant personal stories, yeah. and the artsy fartsy guy. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah, the- like, and when that balance is good, that's when Coppola's movies are great. Yeah, true. Um. Uh. And then he went off to UCLA UCLA Film School in 1960 for grad school. Yeah. And this is the thing that this is the first generation of directors coming out of film school and Francis Ford Coppola. He's like the Papa. He's like mm-hmm. the older brother of all these other guys that are come, who are going to be our filmmakers of the seventies, you know, mm-hmm. like Francis Ford Coppola was the first. Yeah. Know? Yeah. And you know, no surprise again that he kind of assumed this kind of, like you said, Papa mantle with like Lucas and Spielberg and Scorsese and all, they're all contemporary, Hal Ashby, all contemporaries right. of this time that were coming out. He was seen as the Papa bear. It was his natural uh, energy. Right. But also what you brought up earlier, you can't discount the fact that he probably exuded uh a, a more well-read nature, a person who is more knowledgeable of the human condition and of the multiple facts about the world that there might be radiates that kind of Papa energy, wouldn't he? Like a more, I wouldn't say calm because he's certainly a very passionate guy, but no. but certainly intelligence, knowledge, you know? And so you radiate to that when you're a young man who can teach me things, you know? And certainly Coppola probably radiated that with these guys a thousand percent. Well, he's just one of those people that you could see everyone gathered around, mm. you know, and when he spoke, I mean, George Lucas, he's not going to argue with Coppola in 1970. Right. You right. know, like you just go like, yes, you know, whatever you say. Yeah. And that's what's so interesting that we'll get into in the in the later parts of his career mm. when really all these almost all these people surpass him. Yeah. You know, yeah. in all sorts of ways and what that has got to feel like. Right. Here's someone I always forget this person was in film school at UCLA that was a student with him, 
Jim, Jim Morrison. Morrison. Yep. Jim Morrison. <laughs> the doors. That's just crazy. Like feeling these worlds collide like that. Yeah. I think there's a clip in the movie with Oliver Stone where somebody who looks like Coppola makes a comment about his movie. And I think that might be a little bit of a sly allusion to that. Oh, that's it. I haven't seen that movie since. I probably watched it a few times after it came yeah, out. Yeah. But but not in a long time. My, <laughs> my, my guess is, is I don't really need to. No. No. I mean, Val's really good as Jim Morrison. Yeah. Val's always good, pretty much, yeah. in anything he's in. Um, So there's a point, and I, this seems like just a key moment in his life. He's broke. He's living on like 10 bucks a week. Mm-hmm. And he finds out that some students are making a little bit of money shooting uh, softcore pornography, making skin flicks. So he's like, well, I could do that. <laughs> and he writes a short film called Peeper. He gets someone to give him three grand to make it. Um, he hires a, a Playboy playmate named Marley Renfro, mm-hmm. and they make this movie, and he couldn't sell it. No one wants it. And then, and this is what's so crazy, this story. He finds another company that sells softcore pornography that has another movie starring Marley Renfro, and they can't sell that either. So they pay Coppola 500 bucks to cut the two movies together <laughs> and make one longer film, which he does, and they sell it. Wow. Yeah. And then that becomes his gig for a while. Like, there's some German softcore movie that he gets, and he gets hired to, and he shoots some new footage and re-edits together and creates a new film, and then they release it. And so he's making money doing this while he's going to UCLA. <sighs> and this is, of course, who discovers him at this moment is Roger Corman. Roger Corman, of course. Yeah. And Roger <laughs> Corman, you know, he is the seminal figure in a whole bunch of these from Ron Howard and Martin Scorsese and James Cameron. And like, they're all these people that came through the Corman world. Mm. And it's because he saw Coppola as someone he could use. And I mean, use in the, in, in the mostly good way. Yeah. Right. You know, here's a talented person. They can do something for me. And so first he hires him as an editor because that's what he's been doing. And because he, I guess Corman had bought some Russian sci-fi monster movie. Yeah. And so he handed it to (laughs) Coppola and said, make something out of this. And he, he cuts it and 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 uh, Corman goes, oh, well, this is interesting. So now he hires him to be like a dialogue director for a couple of movies. And then he's an associate producer. And, and I love Corman. Like, he's hmm. just such a fascinating figure. And they're shooting some movie in Ireland. And this is, this is my understanding of the story. Corman realizes that he is going to come in under budget on this movie. And so he's going to have an extra 20 grand. And so he goes to Coppola and says, can you come up with a movie that I can shoot for not much money tonight? (laughs) (laughs) Coppola goes home, stays up all night, writes a treatment, brings it in the next day. Corbin goes, that sounds good. Manages to get another European distributor to put up a second 20 grand. He has 40 grand. And that's uh, where he makes his first film, Mm. uh, which is, I think it's Dementia. I think that's what it's called. Mm -hmm. And that's also where he met his future wife, Eleanor, Mm. was working on this Corman film. Mm. Um, And then uh, he, he... uh, he, he's still, of course, a student at UCLA, and he's getting some writing jobs. He writes script for This Property is Condemned, Paris is Burning, this is 1966. And then he buys the rights for a book called You're a Big Boy Now. And he kind of took it and with his own ideas, came up with a script, and then was going to produce it as his thesis film for UCLA. Wow. And that film, which is You're a Big Boy Now, gets distribution from Warner Brothers. So first of all, you make your student thesis film and it gets a theatrical distribution from the studio. He has Geraldine page is in the movie wow. and she gets an Oscar nomination. Wow. So his student film essentially that he made for very little money has distribution and it's an Oscar nominated film <laughs> in 1966 or 67. Right. That's amazing. It's incredible. incredible. And this is five years away from Godfather, by the way. So just yeah. insane to think about that he is already establishing a relationship with the Academy uh, through his work. I, it's it's stunning. Have you, have you ever seen this one? No, by the way? I have been... never seen this one. No. I watched it maybe 10 plus years ago. Okay. Okay. It's what's interesting about it is you. it comes out, the I think, the year before The Graduate. Mm-hmm. And it is very much in that a much less good version of that kind of movie. Oh, okay. 
It's it, you know, like if you look at it as a as a film, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you you I don't think it's that great a movie. Right. If you look at it as a first real film from a young filmmaker with no budget, right. it's really impressive. Well, it's like following, right? Nolan's first film. You watch that film, you're like, oh, okay, I see the bones. Of right. what you're going to be doing later, this idea with time, messing with perception, messing with double crosses, all of this uh, you're going to be tackling in a number of films. So you see the groundwork. It's all black and white, and you're just like, okay, this you can see what is going to ha- be coming. So certainly I'm sure Coppola's film there uh, displays that as well. Yeah, absolutely. And then the next thing he's doing is directing – Fred Astaire yeah. and Petula Clark in Finian's Rainbow. Finian's Rainbow. <laughs> Which I've seen a long time Whoa, ago. Oh, man, yeah. Some people swear by it, though. Some people do like that movie. Um, I put that in the Darby O'Gill kind of category, but <laughs> both those films is kind of weirdly coming out around that time uh, and, uh, you know, achieving a certain level of... I would. I don't know if I would say legendary status, but certainly uh, some level of status that they are films that people refer to uh, in fascinating ways. Well, this is the end of the studio system, as we talked mm. about many times. It's now sixty-seven, sixty-eight, yeah. and the studio is trying to make their old-fashioned kind of musicals, and they are. They just don't hit. No. Like it's just off at this point. This, this formula that worked so well for twenty years. It ain't working, yeah. you know. Yeah, I mean, particularly if you look at Doctor Doolittle, which comes out, I think, the same year or the year before. Right. That is a weird. That is a weird movie. Well, we spoke about uh, this before too in the past, Steve. This is right at the right when Vietnam is starting to become a cultural touchstone. Right before the riots in the in the uh, uh, Democrat uh, at the Democratic National Convention in '68, the public does not want to go to the movie theater anymore to get lost in lies. What they want to go see is the exposure of these lies. You know, it's, it's, it's so a lot of these movies in in the late sixties start to trend to start to explore and investigate and eviscerate a lot of the political institutions and the systemic uh, pillars of our society through their, through the films. Well, and I think that is what, Coppola is one of those he's at the forefront of this you know is because what he does next is he goes up to he makes rain people which I've actually never seen Mm, yeah um uh that's 1969 and then he founds American Zoetrope which is he rejects Hollywood he says we're gonna us artsy people we're gonna go up to San Francisco we're gonna create our own world of filmmaking that won't owe anything to the Hollywood establishment and if you listen to his mission statement it's amazing you know it's like we're gonna make more interesting more creative films we're gonna bring in young artists allow Mm. people to express themselves and it's gonna be this great amazing perfect filmmaking world all created by Francis Ford Coppola and it never actually really happens mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. it, it, they do certainly make some films but it's always and it's so funny um i remember being involved in the founding of a theater company before i started film school yeah. in the early 90s yeah. and i just and that and this could have been their mission statement we're yeah. young playwrights and new artists and new voices and we're gonna not have to deal with the bay area theater establishment and it just it's really hard to do. Well, you know? <laughs> I mean, it's his declaration of principles, right? He, they, you know, totally. people are going to know who's responsible. They're going to get the truth in the Inquirer quickly and simply and entertainingly. And no special interests are going to be allowed to interfere with the truth. Uh, and uh, this is Citizen King quotes. I will also provide them with a fighting and tireless champion of their rights as citizens and as human beings. Signed, Charles Foster Kane. So I yep. imagine he's influenced by this idea, right? And again, once again, this is the late 60s. We're coming out of the flower of power times. We have this idea of people embracing idealism, embracing a different kind of America, trying to create a different kind of America that's very much a commune America, right? Everybody helping everybody to achieve a certain level of success. Uh, and who else but a Papa Bear type person would create this kind of thing? You know, it's, it's almost like a pseudo cult, but for creatives. And, and, and who is with them? Someone that he met on the set of Finian's Rainbow is George Lucas. Yeah, Lucas. And it really seems like Lucas was his, it was his Bernstein. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? 
Not even as Jed Leland, I don't think. No, no, I don't you know. think Lucas. Uh, maybe Spielberg had a little bit of the Leland in him, but certainly Lucas was more of the Bernstein, like totally bought this hook, yep. line, and sinker. As he was growing in his own confidence as a filmmaker, this was a place where he could feel a connection to some kind of uh, pow- more powerful energy, more powerful essence. Maybe, well, maybe there is a little bit of the Emperor Palpatine driven or derived from Coppola. Who knows? That's hilarious. Yep. That's really funny. You never know. Um, well, and what's so strange, because Lucas is up there with uh, Coppola looking in Marin County, which is where I grew up, mm. to find, they wanted to find like the big house to go be the beginning of American Zoetrope. They couldn't find anything. They ended up starting in a warehouse in San Francisco. But then you look at what Lucas did later, which is, you know, uh, which is Lucas Ranch. Yeah. And that is so much, it is a version of what Coppola was trying to do but it is not what Coppola no, was trying no. to Sky, do. Sky, so, yeah. Yeah. Because it isn't for young artists to do their mm. artsy creatives. That's not what's going on at Lucas Ranch. No, Skywalker you know? Ranch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sky, it, sorry, Skywalker yeah, Ranch. Yeah. I don't know where that came from. Yeah, no worries. Um, <laughs> um, anyway, uh, so and, and something that we've already talked about is in the mid-60s, he was also hired to write Patton. Yeah. Yeah. And you, if you want to hear more about that story, we did a two-part big exploration of Patton a few months ago. But <laughs> suffice did. it to say, that movie, which wins Best Picture, he won the Best Screenplay Oscar, that is 1970. And that's what puts Francis Ford Coppola on the map. Yeah. But he still didn't want to work in Hollywood. <laughs> so he's still up in San Francisco. And then Robert Evans is trying to find someone to direct Godfather. And they offer him the part. And first he says no. And George Lucas says to Coppola, you know, um, you, maybe you should take this job because we're out of money. Yeah. Um, and we'll talk much more about The Godfather, of course, uh, because we're going to be going in depth on it. Yeah. But suffice it to say, it was very successful. <laughs> <laughs> and also what Lucas says to him in that moment is something that uh, Coppola would be struggling with for the rest of his time as a filmmaker. The idea of Americans, American zoetrope, the idea of, of, of them struggling to make money. It is very similar to Wells. There is a lot of similarities to yeah. Wells and Coppola and how they have this idealistic version of what they think uh, uh, should be happening in Hollywood. Their desire to rebel against the uh, the old uh, system of Hollywood. Their ability to create or garner uh, a, a level of people who are around them all the time, who support their visions, who are willing to sacrifice themselves to achieve the overall vision of what they're trying to do. So there are a lot of similarities here with Wells and and, and Coppola. Hundred percent agree. And I think there's so much interesting to say about this. Mm. So the the first thing to me is I think there's an argument to be made that Coppola is the director of the 70s. You know. You can absolutely make that case, yeah. That 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 his movies, you know, 72 is 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 The Godfather. Mm-hmm. 74 he makes The Conversation which wins the Palm d'Or, which I think is an amazing movie. It is a great movie. And one I definitely would like to talk to. And that mm-hmm. is on his what he really says he wanted to do. I wanted to make personal, artistic, interesting non-mainstream films and that's the conversation right that's that's the best of those movies in my opinion of his and in the same year he makes godfather 2 yeah yeah like those two movies from one director in the same year there are very few you know we talked about spielberg doing both um jurassic park and schindler's list in the same year yeah there's a there's a few times where directors have done this not very often yeah um and, and and when this happened he was nominated for best director for both movies. Yep. Yeah. I mean, how often does that happen? I think both movies were also nominated for best picture. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, Godfather two wins a ton of stuff, yep. including best picture and best director and screenplay. Uh, he and Billy Wilder are the only two directors to win three awards for one film. Wow. Cause he won best picture director and screenplay on Godfather two. Yeah. Um, um, you know what's crazy, yeah, but- Steve? You would talk about this. You say he's only he only directed four films in the seventies. That's yeah. insane. Godfather, Godfather Two, The Conversation, and Apocalypse. Now that is a hell of a track record for a decade, right? Man. Four iconic films in their own separate ways. You know. Well, and there's an argument to be made that he never did as well since. Yes, absolutely. Like 
Wells. Like Wells. Yeah. No, I, yeah. that's why I think that, um, by the way, I was looking some of the other people that, so people that had two no- films nominated for Best Picture mm-hmm. are Victor Fleming, because he had Gone with the Wind and Wizard of Oz mm-hmm. in the same year. Hitchcock had Foreign Correspondent and Rebecca in the same year. Mm. And then after Coppola, it's really interesting. So it's Herbert Ross, who had The <laughs> Goodbye Girl and The Turning Point were both nominated in the same year. Yeah. And Soderbergh had Aaron Brockovich and Traffic both nominated the oh, same year. wow. Okay. Those are, I mean, it's, it's so funny, like, Herbert Ross <laughs> is on this list. Well, <laughs> just, you, to be fair, to- no one talks about the turning point at all anymore. No, yeah. I totally like the Goodbye Girl. Yeah. I think that's probably the best of the Neil Simon movies. Mm. Um, Richard Dreyfus is great in it, but Marsha Mason, yeah, yeah. But I don't put Herbert Ross up with Alfred Hitchcock <laughs> and Francis Ford Coppola. Yeah, uh, nineteen seventy six. He starts shooting Apocalypse Now. Um, we've obviously talked about this film it was a long time ago. Yeah. I think this movie wrecked him. Absolutely. I mean, if you watch Hearts of Darkness, it is the tale of Icarus. It is him flying close, too close to the sun and burning his wings off. It is the ultimate sacrifice. He mortgages his house. Mr. Morris has some experience with that. He puts everything <laughs> on the line for this movie and everything possible that could go wrong goes wrong. Every sign there for any other person with a little bit less will to quit, to stop, to not go forward is presented to him. He is challenged on levels that he's never experienced before as a filmmaker, and he perseveres. He finds a way to persevere and create, in my opinion, the greatest war film ever made, but one of the most iconic, one of the greatest iconic films ever made in Apocalypse Now about the experience of war, about the madness of war, about the lunacy of war, and at times about the unnecessariness of war, if that's a word. But he does it and perseveres. And so he was tackling, once again, Steve, a idea that has uh, endured for centuries since humans were born, the idea of war and what it really takes out of you and what you experience uh, when you give yourself over to it and the damage it can do. And maybe there's even a symbolic connection for himself as a filmmaker. Making a film can be a war. Well, that's it's funny that you say that because I've been trying to figure out how to articulate this, is yeah. that there's a place where I think Coppola is at his best. And it is really at this weird nexus point of multiple things coming together. Mm. And one of them is he's at his best when he's battling. Mm-hmm. You know, Godfather, as we're going to talk about a lot, yeah. he was about to be fired throughout that film. Oh, yeah. Like, and 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 that's where he does his best work mm-hmm. is, you know, making Godfather 2 in the conversation in the same year with a lot of chaos around him. Yeah. He does amazing work. And the, the ultimate example is Apocalypse Now, where he literally, his star has a heart attack in the middle of shooting. Yeah. A hurricane came, destroys her set. They have no ending to the film. The lead, you know, lead actor shows up 30 pounds overweight. Mm-hmm. You know, they have, I mean, like the, the levels of insanity around him, somehow that fuels him. And the other nexus, I think, for him is there's this weird mix of poetry and artsiness with real heavy serious stuff yeah and it's funny because when we did Patton, the big reason they didn't like his script and threw it out was all of the was the opening monologue (laughs) all the stuff about reincarnation all the sort of poetic stuff and then when george c scott came on that's what a lot of that got brought in yeah and it's that mix of this gritty realistic war film and this weird artsy stuff Mm -hmm. And again, Apocalypse Now is the ultimate example. Of yeah, that. yeah, With, yeah. The 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 journey using hearts using uh, uh, Joseph Conrad's book, uh, Hearts of Darkness, as the and once again the Wells connection because that was the yeah. first film that Wells was actually aiming to do before Citizen Kane was Joseph Conrad's Hearts of Darkness. So to see Coppola take it and maybe in some kind of hubris again, Steve, like tackling this unta- un. Uh, uh, this difficult story, this almost unfilmable story uh, himself and trying to take trying to walk in the shoes of someone great like Orson Welles and bring that vision to life. Uh, maybe he was messing with the film gods and so they messed with him back with all this drama and uh, madness around him to create it. But yes, there are so many poetic moments throughout this yeah. film combined 
with the gritty, real uh, of, uh, effects and cost and consequences of war. Well, and it's such a it's a descent into madness. Yes. And there's so many scenes where it's like, well, what does that mean? Yeah. I mean, it's real. It it completely leaves the realm of reality. Mm-hmm. You know, it, you know, th- there's no, you know, thing like Kurtz in the <laughs> Vietnam War. Right, you know, right, like that's right. not what that world was. Right. That is this created world of Coppola. And I really think, well, he makes movies that I like yeah. after this. Yeah. I don't think he ever reaches anywhere close to this level again. I think you're absolutely right. This is the apex of him as a filmmaker. And Steve, that's what the um, sometimes ugly truth is about a lot of these filmmakers from the 70s. They never captured their greatest work again after the decade was over. Uh, And certainly with Coppola. And isn't the irony that Coppola's you know, throughout that whole movie, it's the Jim Morrison music, isn't it? It's the Doors. It's yep. his fellow classmate there at UCLA, his music that he uses to showcase, uh, you know, the madness of Vietnam, you know, when the uh, the uh, the end, the Doors song, the end. Yeah. Yeah. Which is so powerful. Oh, yeah. Let's move into the 80s. Okay. If we have to. <laughs> um, he makes <laughs> one from the heart, which is a musical. Uh, which maybe I've seen. I don't know. Yeah. It was a financial disaster. Yeah. He makes Hammett, which he co-directed with Vim Vendors, which I have never seen. Yeah. Which was a financial disaster. <laughs> uh, then he makes uh, The Outsiders and Rumblefish. These are two good films, yeah. I think, uh, based on the S.E. Hinton books. Um, and first of all, we got to talk about these casts. Yeah. I mean- Outsiders has Matt Dillon, Ralph Macchio, C. Thomas Howell, Patrick Swayze, Rob Lowe, Emilio Estevez, Diane Lane, and Tom Cruise. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's a good movie. I haven't seen it in a while. Yeah, it's definitely an '80s movie, but I think it, yeah. it's and some people have a real nostalgic love for it. Um, but I also think it's more a film that launches so many careers. Or captures uh, uh, certain people at a, at a certain time when they're at their apex as, a, as in terms of fame. Leif Garrett being one of those people. Oh, right. And it has a very young Tom Waits in the cast of this who will later show up in Bram Stoker's Dracula as Renfield. Right. So uh, uh, you're right. The casts are incredible for this. And I think Rumblefish is Matt Dillon as well. Am I not wrong yep. on that? With uh, No, it's Matt Dillon. Yeah, Rumblefish as well with him and Mickey Rourke and Diane Lane coming back as well. Um, and... Outsiders, it does okay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, it was cut, had a $10 million budget and it made $25 million, Right. <clears throat> which is okay. Mm-hmm. That is, I mean, compared to what he did in the 70s where he had these huge, because mo- that's the thing about all of them, Godfather Conversation, Godfather 2 and Apocalypse Now, Conversation is the least successful financially, yeah. but they're all really successful. Yeah. You know, yeah. and they're all serious, heavy, artsy, long movies that make a lot of money yep. and that, and then, you know, that's the seventies and now he's moved into the eighties and this doesn't really work. Rumblefish was a t- also $10 million movies. It made 2.5 million. <laughs> um, yep. He does the cotton club in 84, Oof. which is not a good movie. That is a rough movie. Yeah. Uh, also just completely fails. It's, it's, you know, it's a $48 million budget, which yeah. is really big in 84 and it made $26 million. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Richard, I mean, Gere- he's getting, killed he's getting killed yeah because but he's getting these budgets based on what he had done in the 70s but the 80s are a completely different time isn't it the 70s is about exploring the political systems and the lies and all of that watergate and all that the 80s are the age of excess and reagan and and those kinds of things and and uh the breakfast club and john hughes and the last thing they want to see is these kinds of movies even de palma figures out the 80s a little you could argue de palma is the scorsese of the 80s uh uh in terms of the approach to the kinds of films he's he grapples with that decade better than coppola does absolutely i mean coppola just is flailing yeah and then his his buddy who was his underling has become hugely successful lucas is like made more money than coppola could ever dream of (laughs) and he hires coppola to make captain eo Which, in a weird way, I might have seen more than any other Coppola film because I, well, I, I was at Disneyland and would go to see Captain EO. Because, like, you're like, well, I don't want to get into the line for Space Mountain right now. I'm okay, play a couple of video games in the arcade, jump through Captain EO, and then I'll get in line for Space Mountain. You know, so I probably watched it 30 times. Uh, yeah. um, 
Uh, yeah. Michael Jackson, some 3D. Yeah, Angelica Houston. A very, very strange uh, film, to really say the strange. least. But uh, but just like Wells, right? Taking these jobs to stay yep. alive, to make money. There are a number of things Wells did uh, to so he could fund the other stuff he was trying to do that you would look back on and be like, why would you ever do this movie? Why are you in this movie playing this character? But it's about the overall thing that he's trying to accomplish. Yep. Hmm. Then he has his first success since Apocalypse Now, and that is Peggy Sue Got Married. Oh, man. Yeah. It's fine. It's fine. And the Kathleen Turner's great. It's sure. it's the emergence of a Nicolas Cage who is becoming a yep. a person to watch. And, of course, Nicolas Cage was in Rumblefish as well. So he is becoming someone that uh, Coppola looks to work with. And, of course, he is related to Coppola, yep. Nicolas Cage is as well. And we should mention that Talia Shire is his sister uh, in real life. Uh, Jonathan Schwartzman, who is Talia Shire's son, is his nephew. So it's like yep. there's a lot of people around Coppola uh, that are talented and are and become successful uh, in the film as well. Nicholas Cage being one of them. Um, well, and and something we're going to talk about a ton, I'm sure. And Godfather is family. Yeah, family is very very important to Coppola. That is very much how he thinks. Yeah. Um, his next film, which I have seen, is Gardens of Stone with James Caan. Oh yeah. And, and I remember watching that movie because it was right when I was getting into films. Mm -hmm. And it was when I sort of went, oh, the great director can make a not great film, you know? <laughs> I really like Tucker, the man in his dreams. I do, too. I think it's a sweet film. Uh, Jeff yeah. Bridges is so alive in this movie, man. It's 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 not a character he gets to play much as Jeff Bridges. And it's yeah. so much fun uh, in Tucker, a man in his dream. And it's, it's heartbreaking, too, Steve. He yeah. finds a way to find the sentiment in this. And, of course, this is also when Martin Landau starts to come into prominence yeah. again. His renaissance as an actor as well as through Tucker, the man in his dream. Yeah, it's my favorite post-70s Coppola film. Oh, okay. I mean, honestly, as we said, the competition so far is not that tough. <laughs> um, and certainly not with this next film, which is one third of New York stories and the worst third. Yeah. Um, the the Woody Allen movie is perfectly funny. The Martin Scorsese movie in there is really good yeah. with Nick Nolte. I agree. And this one starring or co-written with uh, Sofia Coppola is terrible. Yeah. Yeah. Which I think it's a... a a version of their life, her life, right? Is a kind of a story about her life. Yeah. And you're right. The Scorsese one is the one to watch of the New York stories. Um, then to Godfather three. Mm. Um, have you seen the new? No, I, I, it's funny. As we're recording this, I ordered it yesterday on Amazon because it was sold out all over where I live and the Best Buy and Target were sold out. I imagine people gave them as Christmas gifts. Uh, so I ordered it from Amazon. Should be getting here Sunday and I will be watching it on Sunday for sure. We've talked about, um, and it's on our survey too, about yeah. doing some more of these sort of hour-long discussions of movies oh. that don't get the full cinephile treatment. I think The Godfather 3 will be a... I think we should do it yeah, for that. Yeah, a thousand percent. And do, and do Coda, do the new version. I'm curious to watch it. Yeah. I have not liked any of the recuts of Apocalypse Now. Yeah. I still like the original first. I agree. So I don't have that much faith. And, and Godfather 3, there are scenes in it where you're like... This scene is amazing. Oh, yeah. The scenes with Garcia and Pacino are so alive and so electric and they're fun. Yeah. Even Talia Shire, I love what they did with Connie in the third yeah. one, what she has become now as an older woman, having gone through the stuff that she right. went to in the first two films. It is so great to see her embrace a little bit more power in the family. But Sophia is so horribly miscast and it makes it so difficult to enjoy and watch the movie. Yeah. Uh, and, but there are shades of Coppola and you wonder where this guy went through the 80s why wasn't he directing Untouchables why wasn't he directing right. these epic 80s films and bringing that kind of life I mean Last Emperor that Bertolucci did how is he not creating these epics these incredible films why is he doing Peggy Sue got fucking married or Tucker even it's just like these are films that are beneath him to a degree and his talent why is he not making these other films it is is it a combo of his own self-destructive impulses like Wells had is it because studios don't want to hand him epic films? They don't believe in him anymore? I don't know what it is. But seeing so many great scenes in Godfather Part 3 shows you that that muscle, that ability is still yeah. there with the right material. The, uh, here's what I think, and I have no evidence of this at all, mm -hmm. and it's psychoanalyzing a person who I don't know, but my, I think he was scared. 
Maybe after I think like Apocalypse you Now scared him. Yeah, and I, I and and I think he has to be in these. He threw himself into these battles, these just crazy situations, and did his best work. And mm-hmm. I don't think he wanted to go there again. Mm-hmm. I think he wanted a gig. And Captain EO is a gig. <laughs> yeah. Peggy Sue got married. He's a gig. That's a gig. Yeah. You know, like and, and he's a talented person and brought his talent to those things. But yeah. I don't think until you get to Godfather Three, I think there's some elements of like, okay, yeah. You know, it's time to bring it. Yeah. Um, Bram Stoker's Dracula is extremely successful. I do not like that movie. <laughs> I think just like one lesser so than Godfather Part Three. I think there are some good scenes in the movie. I think oh, Gary, very cool. I think Gary Oldman is incredible in totally. that fucking film. And the opening of him when he becomes Dracula, that is so full of rage and passion and artistry. And once again, Steve, like you said, the combo of the poetry, because the visuals of that movie are stellar combined with the grittiness of him being Dracula. I think that's where he kind of fails in the movie is being able to combine those two as seamlessly as he did in previous films. Because I think there was all the makings of one of the most epic Dracula films ever told. Uh, and he just didn't quite get there. He indulged one side or the other too much in certain scenes, and it ended up uh, just not making the film totally work. I, I can, I, I've only seen it probably twice. Oh, wow. Um, so maybe I should watch it again. But like, what I can remember from watching it is like, oh, my God, this is so cool. Yeah. And now I'm completely bored. Oh, this is really cool. <laughs> I don't understand what's going on now. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, um, it's, it's, I'm just looking at what the next movie is. Yeah, is Jack. No, I've never Robin seen Williams. this. I've never seen this, and may never see this. To be honest, there's no you. reason you should. It's okay. Yeah, it's not a terrible movie. Right, right. It's just not a good movie. Rainmaker is okay. I like Rainmaker. For, I like it for what it is. It's a perfectly good film, serviceable film. Once again, he's using. Uh, an author, he's adapting an author's work like he did with Mario Puzo, like he did with Essie Hinton, and mm-hmm. like he does here with John Grisham. And I think of the Grisham adaptations, it's maybe the best or one of the best. Yeah. Uh, for sure. I, and I Damon like is great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, then there's like a decade goes by. Mm-hmm. There's some lawsuits, some, oh, right. you know, stuff that he didn't quite get made. And then there's, I, I, I've never seen any of these movies. Yeah. I haven't seen any of the movies of the last decade. There's Youth Without youth yeah it's just supposed to be terrible uh it had a 19 million dollar budget and made 2.6 million dollars right there's tetro which i haven't seen nope neither have i um and then there's a movie which i have not even heard of which is <laughs> twixt which is val comer bruce dern and l fanning mm. which was it seems like it was barely released yeah 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 um, and that was in 2011. Here, here's what Coppola said in 2015. He said, that's why I ended my career. I decided I didn't want to make what you would call factory movies anymore. I would rather just experiment with the form and see what I could do and make things that come out of my own uh, mind. And little by little, the commercial film industry went into the superhero business and everything was on such a scale. The budgets were so big because they wanted to make big series of films where they could make two or three parts. I felt I was no longer interested enough to put in the extraordinary effort film takes nowadays. I think that's a cop out. Yeah, uh, I do too. Right? I, I think there have been many directors who have carved out. So look at Spielberg. I mean, I think this is a cop out. Spielberg and Lucas. Uh, uh, I mean, less or so Lucas, but Spielberg, certainly Schindler's List is the 90s. That is 20 years after, you know, or a little bit over 20 years after Jaws or under 20 years after Jaws. He is still doing great films, iconic films, films that people will remember. It is that I think it's I think you're you might be right with your theory here. And of course we're not saying it's hundred percent the truth, but maybe Apocalypse now broke him in a way that he can't he was never able to fully recover from. The idea that he was making studio films, that was his choice to do those studio films. That was his choice to do these kinds of things because he, he maybe he lost it as he got older, Steve. We see this all the time. Freakin made some of the best seventies films made crap after the 70s you know yep. it's so many great directors from the 70s Bogdanovich Bogdanovich oh yeah last yeah. picture show and what have you going into the 80s they don't understand how to navigate the decade of 80s 90s or 2000s and they don't come back to prominence as directors and it's sad to see well p- part of it we have to say is that directors like Scorsese or Spielberg they're the exception 
Like people right. who decade after decade can continue to produce interesting, really good work. Right. That's not normal. But I also think the reason I think it's a cop out is it's not that I think that saying, hey, Hollywood has gone into these superhero films that have just you know, that's totally accurate mm -hmm. and saying, I don't want to do that kind of movie. That's totally fine. True. And saying, I don't want to be involved in the corporate world and all the networks and all the negotiations and all that stuff. Totally fine. He didn't make that many good movies in the 80s. Right. You know, like post-apocalypse now, um, you know, for after the decade of the 70s, for the first five, six years of the 80s, he could have done whatever he wanted. Yeah, yeah. They, he had an open door to do anything, and he didn't make good movies right? in general, right? you know? And so, like, that's why I go, it's a cop-out. Mm -hmm. Like, when you, if he had made decades of good movies and then said, you know, I don't want to do this anymore, fine. But saying, but having a lot of failures mm. on a lot of bad movies and going, you know what? I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> it's like, well, okay. And and, and this is the thing. And, and the, I, I hadn't thought about the Wells comparison, but I'm so glad you brought it up mm. because, you know, it's like we did Wells and then we did these two filmmakers that made great movies forever, Hitchcock and Kurosawa. Mm, mm. And now we're back to another filmmaker who had the hubris and the ego and the uh, the passion and the charisma and shined unbelievably brightly for a small amount of time. Yeah. And it's still around. Yeah. And, you know, and Steve, I would argue that Wells comes out on the better end of the deal than Coppola does because Wells still made F for fake. Wells still made these kinds of films that people talk about still chimes at midnight, which is incredible because he stayed or he adhered or stayed a slave to his desire to make films his way that mattered, yeah. to pursue his artistic vision. Uh, and you could argue that a number of films could have broken Wells, the way they took the ending away from him for Magnificent Ambersons, yep. the way they messed with him on Touch of Evil. There are a yep. number of things that the studio system, that he, but, uh, you know, he willfully participated in this destruction of his own career at times, uh, could have destroyed him. And he persevered, yeah, doing schlocky things as an actor, but it was yeah. also that he could direct his version of Othello or his version of Macbeth or do F for Fake or do these other films that were uh, more of an expression of who he was artistically. So he did, and he talks about all the time in the later years how he became a slave to making these kinds of films because he just loved them uh, and couldn't stop. Whereas Coppola in a way, kind of sold out, which is the first time I'm really kind of considering that possibility, Steve, as we talk about it, that Coppola sold himself out. And you might be right. It might be out of fear. It might have been out because he just lost that spark to create these epic films. But certainly, there's no way you could convince me that there wasn't a possibility. I'm sure De Palma, I'm sure Lucas, I'm sure all these people were like, dude, we, oh, will, yeah. we will help you. Whatever it is, we will pave the way Scorsese uh, a Spielberg, I'm sure they all were like, whatever it is, I mean, we will help you George, make it. George Lucas, Lucas could have funded his films out of pocket change. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, the, I, I, I'm, I'm really struggling with like how to articulate this because there's such, mm. such, there's such odd people, Wells and Copeland. Yeah, yeah. I think surprisingly, you have this young, egotistical Orson Welles that in some, who, who was bossy and domineering and all the things that we know about him. Yeah. But in some way, he was the pure artist mm -hmm. because I don't think Wells could stop. No. I don't think he was capable of not being making a movie. He died Even if he, yeah. halfway through May writing a script. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and he was just like, you know, and you look at, um, what's the movie that finally came out? The Other Side of the one? Wind. Yeah. You look at The Other Side of the Wind, um, it's which isn't a good movie but there are things in it where it's like man there's orson welles mm -hmm. like some of the shots in it where you're like holy shit this is so gorgeous and you could yeah. see even if he's making it in his garage and carrying the camera and all by himself he is not gonna stop yeah you know right. until he died whereas coppola i think he had a vision of himself as papa mm -hmm. that he was in the 70s and it was sort of I'm still trying to be that. Right. You know what I mean? Right. right. Throughout the rest of his films. Like maybe, I don't know if he could go hat in hand to George Lucas. Yeah. And may, that's, know? and that's a great point, Steve. Maybe he couldn't, maybe he couldn't, uh, uh, give himself over to it and ask for help. Um, yeah. and once again, Wells, uh, had no problem doing that. Wells swallowed his pride multiple times right. asking for money. People offered him money. He, you know, did, 
commercials. He did voiceovers. He did I mean, the fucking Transformers movie. I mean, like he did yeah. things that funded him being able to do other things and had no shame about it. Um, and whereas Coppola was very much a prideful man who didn't want to do these things and, and, and put himself in the position. So I, it's, it's I, sad to see, actually. I mean, honestly, to go live in your winery in Napa, it's not so bad yeah agreed like he eventually found his way to a money-making venture for himself that really worked out and traded in on his name which speaks uh volumes about how much people still revere his name and his movies you know well and i gotta go back to those four movies in the 70s Mm. i mean that's pretty unassailable yeah on a resume yeah you know just like that back to back to back to back to make those films you know, there's no amount of praise I could give him yeah. that would live up to that, mm-hmm. you know, despite the fact that he also made a lot of movies. Like, huh? <laughs> <laughs> he did what now? <laughs> yeah, and you um, wonder if he's got one more great one in him before he goes. You wonder. Well, there's one There's one called Megaopolis mm. that, his, that is still on the books that he says he's still trying to make. Yeah. And it's something about a sort of post-major attack and rebuilding New York City something Mm. but that's all i know about it um i don't know if i would ask if you have final thoughts on francis ford coppola (sighs) yeah i think we can you know as we and it's great i love these discussions steve because i discover so much in thinking about it and in conversation with you about these subjects uh and they're fun to explore and you wonder if what we talked about is uh, is the truth about Coppola, this idea of there was these so many minute movies inside of him and he walked away from this impulse, from the desire to create the kind of films that he was creating in the 70s, maybe lost his confidence, maybe lost his mojo, maybe he was scared, what have you. And uh, you, you wonder about a, a, an artist's journey as they go through life, as they go through their career multiple decades. And you wonder if they'll come back around to it once and for all. But that being said, for someone, I mean, freaking Hal Ashby, uh, Bogdanovich, you could throw all their great films from the 70s together and they won't match the kind of reverence people have for the Godfather series or for the conversation in a lot of quiet corners and for Apocalypse Now. You know, they're not doing a they're not celebrating a 4K re-release of The Exorcist or The Last Picture Show. They did that last year for the for Apocalypse Now. They showed it in right. theaters, the 4K restoration for a couple of weeks. And that shows you the kind of love people still have for Coppola. So although those four films are really his apex overall as a director, they are four films that people still rediscover, generations still rediscover and fall in love and still influence people to become filmmakers. Uh, so in that way, his legacy will always be assured and safe in the world of film uh, and people will forget the eighties and nineties and two thousands films. Cause they don't matter as much as the seventies ones do. Yeah, no, of course mm-hmm. the um, it, it's funny just thinking about the other directors we've discussed in this manner and, and Hitchcock being the ultimate example along with Kubrick of the directors where we perceived that they had the whole movie in their head mm. and that they were just executing and Hitchcock where, everything is so minutely planned out or Steven Spielberg where everything is really, really planned out and pre-visualized and thought through. And, and that is not Coppola, Mm. you know, and that I think what Coppola did, which is a perfectly valid method of art is I'm going to put myself in the situation and that things are going to happen and things are going to come to me and I'm going to discover things and actors are going to make choices and locations like Coppola always wanted to be in weather. Yeah. That's one of his, like he, he didn't, Hitchcock wanted to be in the studio where everything was controlled <laughs> and Coppola was like, Oh, there's it's, it's snowing. Let's go shoot. Right. That's how he thought because he felt that real things in the world would drive him to create, yeah. you know, and, and certainly in the seventies, that was a hundred percent true. Mm-hmm. I'm going to throw myself into a crazy situation and I will expect myself to be brilliant, which mm-hmm. he was. And I, the, the problem with that system, unlike Hitchcock's is how many times can you go to the well? Mm-hmm. And what if you're out in the situation and nothing comes to you, yeah. you know, yeah. because sometimes it doesn't. And, and so I think like he is this, 
much like the 70s, this moment in time that never gets reproduced. Mm -hmm. There's no decade like the 70s in the history of film yeah. because there was so much experimentation. There was so much drive. All topics were wide open. Suddenly, we, you know, violence and sex and drugs and real human emotion and the dark sides of people and all that was just getting explored. And that's Coppola, man. Mm -hmm. That's where he was. He was out in that. Yeah. And I think when the decade ended with Apocalypse Now is easily, you know, there are a couple of films you can say, that's it. That's the end of the 70s. And Apocalypse Now, along with like Raging Bull and a few others, that's the end. Yeah. Once that era is over, he's never the same again. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah, a thousand percent. And uh, but still, uh, he's his his name still carries weight. And so, yeah, that that's the thing at the end of the day is he's still one of the greats, no matter what. Well, he's still one of the greats. And the next whatever it is, two months that you and I get to spend in his world. Yeah, I'm really excited. Me too, man. There's going to be so much to talk about, so much to explore, and we get to relive one of the great artists when he is vibing with all his impulses and all his energies and all his decisions and all his battles. And maybe we explore by the end of that decade, how much these battles, as we've said over and over again on this particular episode took out of him and that eventually he was all fought out by the time the eighties start. You know, you know, it'd be interesting. And I don't know that we'll do this, but mm. when we get to the end and we're at the end of Godfather two or wherever mm. we are, it'd be interesting to revisit this question. Yeah. Yeah. Who is Francis Ford Coppola? That's a great point. You know, because by then we will have really explored him, you yeah. know, a whole bunch. I agree. And maybe our thoughts will have evolved. I don't know. Yeah. We're always open to but, that. But right now, that's what we think of Francis Ford Coppola. We would love to hear what you think. What are his favorite films other than the ones that we're talking about? You know, maybe you're a huge fan of Rumblefish or Jack or The Rainmaker or Bram Stoker. We'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Visit our Facebook page. Just do a search for The Cinephiles. You can subscribe to the show, which I hope you already have on iTunes or Spotify. Visit us on YouTube where you can uh, subscribe to the show and also leave your comments, which we love to see. You can uh, buy or stream any film we've ever reviewed on cinephiles.net. You can support the show on patreon.com slash the cinephiles where you can hear our shorts and you can, what is the next thing I'm supposed to say? Oh yeah. Um, and you can follow the cinephiles on Twitter at cine underscore files on uh, Instagram on the cinephiles podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at SR Morris, SR Morris one on Instagram. John, how about you? You can always follow me at the Roca says on Twitter and on Instagram as well. And if you wouldn't mind, come on over to my YouTube channel as well. YouTube.com slash John Roca says, see all the multiple uh, uh, content that we're doing there, all the different wide variety of subjects we explore there on the YouTube channel. And that is it for this week. But stay tuned for the not month of Coppola, <laughs> but the months of Coppola coming soon to the cinephiles.